Good morning, everyone. Uh, we have our sound system little bit by little bit getting fixed each week, so I'm very grateful for that. I have two very quick announcements. The first is uh, about Kaya. She has been with us as part of the worship team for probably four to five years being involved in that. And um, over the summer was mentored by Logan and chose by Logan and the rest of the team to help lead during the summertime as an intern. And we are grateful and thankful to make it a little bit more permanent than just intern. So welcome Kaya to the worship team and leading it as our worship director, song leader, however we want to create that title, but really appreciate it. Thank you very much for joining us. And then secondly, we have some visitors with us this morning. A planned visitor, so if you're a visitor, I'm not going to call on you. <laughs> I know how terrifying that can be as a first-time guest being called out as a visitor. But Jacob and Mariah Buss, please stand up. Thank you. And where's little Ezra? Okay, there were seven or eight crying this morning, so it may not just be him. But he's visiting with us, they're visiting with us from Texas. Shout out to Texas. Oh, no, no shout out to Texas? Okay, all right. Tough crowd. Uh, but he is with us today, as Lori mentioned, uh, this weekend to come and interview as our family pastor. And this evening, I will reiterate it again, six o'clock right downstairs in the youth room right through the main doors he will be here the whole family will be here and to answer questions about the role of family pastor as well as how he feels he can fit into this role plus random questions about what he likes and dislikes things like that um, so i would encourage anyone since he has uh, some responsibilities from nursery all the way to adult studies it applies to every one of us so i encourage you to come this evening we'll have a couple snacks and uh, maybe even have an opportunity to hear him teach, and that would be a fantastic thing. Today from 7, or 6 o'clock this evening, to about 7, maybe 7.30, and you can kind of come in and out during those times if you'd like, so thanks. And, oh, and by the way, we've already taken him to the Chili Fest, so they, they're, they're well-versed in Chili Fest, had a chance to go to Liberty Point, and uh, eat a lot of food so far. We've, we've been eating a lot of food. Uh, all good food. Uh, so, all of that aside, we're focusing in on John chapter 11. And to start out, I have a confession to make. And I, I realize that this isn't a big juicy confession, uh, but it's one that you probably already have figured out about me multiple times. I have a challenge of being patient. And I want to explain one of the ways in which that displays itself besides driving. Every now and again, we will watch uh, like a reality TV show. And, and we've watched different shows over the past where Survivor, where someone gets voted out, or uh, a show called Alone, where you're kind of by yourself and you have to outlast everyone. This is how impatient I am. The very first episode that we watch of a brand new show that has, you know, 10 different episodes, I'll go online and I will find out who won because I don't want to have to wait 10 hours and watch 10, 10 episodes to figure out who won. I'll find out who wins, but I won't tell anybody. I'll let that be a surprise for everybody else, but that is how impatient I am. I can't even watch a show that is there for entertainment purposes because I want to know the end even before I begin. And 
I then make a decision within that first five minutes of finding out who won, whether or not I'm actually gonna watch the show. Because I may disagree. I look at who wins and I'm like, no, nah, I don't want that person to win. I only saw that person for five seconds and I want them to win. And so I am very impatient. And this morning, you get to experience patience with me, or impatience, however you want to say that. Because as we go through John chapter 11, we are going to stop smack dab in the middle of the story and leave it for next week. And you are going to have to exercise patience for the next six days until we come back next Sunday to get the rest of the story. And I know what you're thinking. You're already thinking, Tim, I can read the next verse. I know what's going to happen next week. Well, keep it to yourself. Some people may not know exactly what happens after verse, where are we ending? Ending in verse 14. They may not know what happens in verse 15. Let it be a surprise to them, even though you may already want to know what the end of the story is. And it feels awkward to end where we're ending, but I want you to feel awkward where we end, because everyone in the story is feeling awkward the entire time in chapter 11. So I want us to feel that same sense of, God, do something. God, would you finally do something? Would you please help? Would you please help? Only to have him say, eh, I'm going to hang out here for a couple days. We'll deal with your thing later. When death itself is on the line. So we already know through the book of John that Jesus is displayed as our Messiah, who was the overcoming God King. That all of the Old Testament looked forward to the coming of Christ as the Messiah, as the one who would redeem them and forgive their sins, die on their behalf, be the sacrifice they could never be. And in doing so, he would show himself to be overwhelmingly powerful in defeating all of our enemies, all of our spiritual enemies, starting with death itself starting with that enemy who deceived us all along and deceives us even today, the devil, and defeats sin, the guilt, the shame, the pain, the agony of our doubt and frustrations. He's come to end all of that, and he overcomes it as our king and demonstrates himself to be fully God in doing so. And in this text, which we're going to have to stop and wait for the next week, we're also going to see him overcoming something that up until this point, no one had seen him do before. So he has left Jerusalem at this time, and we're going to get the context in the first three verses. Now there was a certain man who was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, in the village of Mary and her sister Martha, it was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with his hair, with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. So Jesus gets the announcement as he has left Jerusalem and the Feast of Tabernacles and back in ministry and back in the countryside. He finds out that one of his best, closest friends is sick. And I know that we've all received that phone call, we've all gotten that text, we all had that conversation with someone when we found out someone that we knew in common was sick. And one of our first responses, I would hope one of our first responses in that, would be what? 
as believers, what would we do? Let's pray. Let's pray. And I know some of us say that just as a politeness. I'll pray for you. But deep down, that is what we have to hold on to, is taking our need before God saying, help. There's nothing that I can do for someone who is sick. There's no medical treatment I can bring them. There's no healing to their body. It has to be a divine intervention of God hearing my request and entering into that moment and helping the person. We rightly go to God and say, help. This person is sick. This person got hurt. This person lost their job. Whatever the trial is, it may not be sickness. It may be another trial of life, which we are surrounded by and pounded by and overwhelmed. It weighs upon us. And our response is, I'll go pray. I'll pray. I'll pray right here and now. I'll pray this week. I'll pray until I hear differently from you. And so it is a good thing when we hear from someone, hey, someone's not feeling well, that we go pray that that's our natural response. And there's not very many people in Scripture that are named particularly, besides the disciples, that are close friends and colleagues of Jesus. Mary, Martha, and Lazarus is one of those. And they are near and dear to Jesus' heart. And they are near and dear to the disciples. They're known. They're part of that inner circle. They may not be giving up everything and following him as a disciple, but they have given over their hearts to their Lord and Savior, to this Messiah, this overcoming God King, and they are devoted to him. So devoted that when there is trial and troubles in their life, they go immediately to him and say, Messiah, only you can help. Only you have got this answer. But this is how Jesus responds in verse 4. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. I would suggest that this is not the kind of response we should have when someone tells us they're sick or someone they know is sick because we're not God. We don't know the details. And obviously, the whole events are not happening for our glory. But Jesus sees in this, just like he saw in the lame man and in the blind man and the deaf man, all of this, every time he interacts with humanity, the goal is that he would receive glory, that he would receive acknowledgement, that he would receive praise. Everything. God is more concerned about his glory than he is about our comfort. And I know that that can sound almost egotistical of God. He's more concerned about his own glory than our comfort. Our comfort is fleeting. Our comfort can change minute to minute, can it? Our feelings can change minute to minute. Our idea of success changes minute to minute. Our idea of uh, you know, this is a great day, can change minute to minute. We are so fickle with how our day is going and how our life is that it's constantly changing and flexing around us. But with God, there is this steady revealing of his glory, revealing of his nature, that he is fully God and fully man, that he is eternal, that he is all-knowing, that he is omnipotent, that he is all-powerful, that he is God that he wants all of nature, all of his creation 
to acknowledge and reflect it. That's why he created us in his image, that we would be reflectors of his glory, like the sun reflects upon the moon, and the moon, I mean, the moon reflects the sunlight, so we are to reflect the glory of God. And anything that diminishes from that, God says, you need to get back to me. And he is worthy to be glorified. He is worthy to be acknowledged because he alone is unique as God. There is no one and nothing that can take his place. He is supremely and perfectly praiseworthy. And my comfort, how my day is going, is irrelevant to how majestic our God is. And every time we think our day is, oh, it's all about me, look at what I'm suffering, look at what I'm having to deal with, I'm not, God does not dismiss the fact that we have challenges and does not dismiss the fact that we have pains and we have sorrows. He addresses that. But the goal of our thinking should not be, woe is me. The goal of our thinking in those trials, even in sickness, even in Lazarus' case, is not the woe is me syndrome, but how is God glorified in this? How can God bring me comfort? How can God be announced in my suffering, in my pain, and in my sorrows? The focus immediately goes from woe is me to isn't our God amazing? And every time we stop and make that conscious decision to think more about God than about our discomfort, something wonderful happens in my heart. Those pains and sorrows and hurts that I was experiencing a minute before feels just a little bit less. It's not gone. I'm not ignoring it. But it just doesn't seem that important when I start thinking about the amazing glories and beauties and works and promises of God, when that happens, all of a sudden, all of my cares, all of my concerns really are meaningless. And it can happen by just looking at a bird in the sky and reminding myself of the promises that God made, that Jesus himself made in the Sermon on the Mount, not a sparrow falls without God knowing about it. Not a hair on your head falls out without God knowing about it. If he takes care of the lilies of the field and the flowers and the beasts of the field, will he not take care of you? And the answer is, of course he will. But we fret about the weight of all the stuff we face in life. And we miss the mark. Jesus reminds us of the mark. This illness does not lead to death. I believe he's speaking about spiritual death. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of Man may be glorified through it. Imagine every event that we go through that's painful, really painful. If our first thought is, how can God be glorified through this? That's not the same as saying, well, every cloud has a silver lining. Spoiler alert, that's not a scripture verse. Not every cloud has a silver lining, but every cloud and stormy event that we face does have the glory of God front and center, and we have to change our thinking and our eyesight from our problem to how is God glorified in this. And it may not be healing. It may not be healing. It may not be 
a removal of that pain or that sorrow, just like Paul. Paul was close to God, was he not? Paul was a warrior of the faith. Paul was an evangelist like the world has never seen. He planted more churches than we've ever attended. And when Paul said, I got this thorn in my flesh, whatever it might be, it's hindering me, it's hurting me, I'm suffering from it, what was God's answer? No, I'm not going to remove that from you. My grace is sufficient for you. And that's God's way of saying, I'm all you need. You don't need relief from this trial and this trouble and this pain and this sorrow and this hurt. You don't need relief from it. What you need is refocusing. And the refocus is on him and his glory and his majesty. How can our eyes be refocused not on our trouble and our circumstances, but on God? And Christ says it right here. Not too concerned about Lazarus at the moment. Everything is all about my glory and how God has made me for this moment. Now, we still don't know what he's doing. Remember, don't read ahead. Let there be some patience involved here. But he's not immediately saying, you know what, I'll pray for you. Or, why don't I go and visit him? That's what they were looking for. They were looking for, how are you going to help me? And Jesus' help is not physically for Lazarus at this moment, not physically to help Mary and Martha's emotional state, but to make the statement that all could hear and John could write, this is the time for the glory of God to be known and seen so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. So he's going to see and use this circumstance that Lazarus is facing, which is death. And he's going to radically change our directed eyesight from Lazarus to himself, from Lazarus to ourself, from our pains to him, from our disappointments to him, from our problems to him. So he moves on further in verse 5 through 7, and we get a little bit of insight into this relationship between Jesus, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, this wonderful and beautiful relationship. John tells us in verse 5, Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. I, I used to think that that verse had nothing to do with me. My name's not mentioned there, is it? It doesn't say and Tim. And it doesn't say your verse, and so-and-so. Until God quickly, very quickly, and I think he's already doing it in your mind too, corrected that thinking that it's not talking about you. While your name is not listed there, your name is already listed in the book of life as one of his children. And he's already told us in John 3, 16, for God so loved the world but not Tim. We're, we're not sure about that yet. It says he loves us. And he sent his own son to die for us. And he prays for us. And I cannot wait to get to John chapter 17, which is a prayer all about God's glory and how you are invested in that glory. And we've already seen in chapter 10 that he is saying these things for our benefit. We see in chapter 20 that we saw last week that he's thinking about us. 
Even when he walked this earth, we were in his mind. We were in his conscious thoughts of how do I bring this person into, into a redemptive story with the Father. I'll give my life for him. What better sacrifice, what better demonstration of love can I give but to lay down my life for someone who is still unborn and still my enemy? While our name is not in that verse, we are in the verses of Scripture where God declares He loves us. But uniquely to this context, John says this relationship that Jesus, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus have is real. It is so real, it is, it is intimate. It is a self-sacrificing love that he has for them. And you would think that that would then motivate, okay, Jesus doesn't just simply know them. He loves them. He better get on his hands and knees and start praying. He better go and help them. No, that's not what Jesus does. That's not his goal. His goal is not to help Lazarus. It's not to help Mary and Martha through this process of grieving or uncertainty about what's going to happen to their brother. His goal is what? How am I going to get glorified through this? How the Father is going to be recognized through this? How is God seen in this moment? Because God is all glorious. He is beautiful to consider. He is beautiful to acknowledge. He is supremely amazing to be captivated with. When we are captivated by the glory of God, everything else becomes dim and distant and less important. The closer you are to God, the less and less the worries of this world are important. The less and less money is important. The less and less relationships are important. The less and less you being acknowledged is important. When we are closer to God, we're, we are more satisfied. We are more satisfied. But Jesus has a close relationship with them. Verse 6 and 7, So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in a place where he was. Then after this, he said to his disciples, Let us go to Judea again. So Jesus, without knowing the rest of the story and without knowing all the details surrounding it, we would look like he's delaying. They just told you he's dying. Go help them. Go pray. Do something. And his answer is, I want to see God glorified in this, and I'm just going to stay and wait. And then he says, now, two days later, let's go to Judea. That little phrase is incredibly scary. Let's go to Judea. It is scary because the disciples had just left Jerusalem in that area after Jesus in chapter 10 had been threatened twice with death and had to escape and miraculously was able to leave without any harm whatsoever. The Jews wanted to kill him. And Jesus goes, hey, we're leaving, now let's go back. You can imagine how the disciples reacted next. 
That's what we see in verse 8 through verse 16. He has a discussion with his disciples, which had a terrifying thought. If we go back, we may, may not get out next time. So not only is Lazarus in trouble, but maybe we'll get in trouble too. Maybe Lazarus is facing death. Maybe we will. We want to stay far away from Judea, far away from Jerusalem and the surrounding areas. We don't want to go anywhere. We love being east of the Jordan River. We love hanging out where the Jews don't have a lot of control and say, and where we can kind of fly under the radar. But now you want to go back. The disciples in verse 8 said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and you want to go there again? And Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble, because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles, because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to him, and this starts to make sense, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I will go awaken him. So he's talking about living in this clouded fear of not knowing what's going on. And if you walk in a sense of not knowing what's going on, yes, it is fearful. Yes, it is night. Yes, it is dark. Yes, you don't know the steps. But if you have an understanding of what's going on, then you have the clarity of walking in bright sunshine and not afraid of what may be in the dark. And God knows, Jesus knows, what is going on in the moment. Not simply because he is all-knowing, which he is, but he knows the focus of his eyesight. It's glory to God, God's glory. And if I'm walking in the mindset of I'm here to glorify God, I'm here to glorify God, solo de glory, all glory to God. If I'm here to glorify God, if every thought and every step and every action and every relationship is to glorify God, what do I have to be afraid of? What's going to take me by surprise and get me? Dying? That's not really going to get me because I'm already secure from death. Someone's not going to like me? Uh, my, my joy in life is not based on how many people like me. Oh, Tim, they might unfriend you on Facebook. Oh, you got me. Because my contentment and satisfaction and joy in life is how many friends I have on Facebook and who still likes me after I post something. No. Because my focus is not on how I'm feeling and being satisfied, but how I can satisfy the glory of God in my life. That is the clearest walk of day you can have. And Jesus is talking to the disciples in those terms. If I didn't know what I was doing, I'd be terrified. But I know what I'm doing. I'm stepping this day, this moment, with thoughts on glorifying God, which means loving him, honoring him, and obeying him. And doing the same, loving, honoring those around me. The two greatest commandments. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. If your day is marked by that is my goal, I guarantee you, you will not be walking in darkness. You will not know everything. You're not going to know the future. But you're going to know that my next step that I take is so grounded in the reality that God is my king that Jesus is my Messiah, that I am safe in his hands and that no one can pluck him out of my hands. I am his and he is mine. 
Let the world throw its best at you. It cannot get you because you're walking in the light of his glory and his grace, as that ancient hymn tells us. Does that make a little bit more sense now as we look at verse 9 again? Are there not 12 hours in a day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. And after saying these things, he said to him, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I will go awaken him. You understand that Jesus is not afraid of death, not afraid of Mary and Martha, not afraid of the circumstances about Lazarus. He goes, I know I'm walking in God's light. I know exactly what my day is meant to be, to walk that his glory might be manifested in my life. He's not afraid of the unknown. He's not afraid of sorrow and pain. He's not afraid of a clear, dear friend that he loved dying. That does not shake his resolve to make that day all about God's glory. It doesn't scare him. He's not unsure. He's confident. He continues to say there, uh, the disciples then say in verse 12, the disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. I don't know how long technically the disciples have already been with Jesus, but they don't get it. Because Jesus is not talking about, you know, he, he started to take a nap, and I think we should go there and just surprise him. Hey, Lazarus, we're here. But the disciples are thinking, oh, he'll just wake up, right? If he's just asleep, he's not talking about just falling asleep, he's tired type of thing, taking a nap. He's talking about death. Now, Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought he meant he was taking a rest and sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. I love the fact that sometimes, most times, pretty much all the time, Jesus has to just be clear with us. Because if he's not clear with us, sometimes we are left, just like the disciples, confused. And Jesus doesn't want us to be confused. He wants us to be confident in following him. Not confused in following him, but confidently following him. So Jesus knows where his disciples are at and has to clarify it. Hey, I, I was talking metaphorically here that he's asleep and I'm going to wake him up, but I mean he's dead. Now, from verse 1 through verse 13 there, when did Jesus find out that Lazarus was dead? Who told him that? No one. He's exercising this God nature that he is, fully God, knowing some of the details that the disciples don't know, but he's letting the disciples know, I, I'm so close to walking in the God's glory, I'm so confident that this has happened, I'm going to go do something about it. Don't fret about it. So Jesus had to tell them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. So Thomas called the twin, and we saw Thomas last week in chapter 20, and we'll see him again as we go through the book. This is Doubting Thomas. Thomas called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. Thomas, Thomas, Thomas. 
Or another way of saying that is, Tim, Tim, Tim. I cannot be any clearer with you, can I? We're going to Jerusalem that I might resurrect Lazarus. I haven't talked about you dying. I'm not going to die. My time's not yet come. We're not talking about martyrdom. I'm not going to get arrested at this moment. I'm going to do the Lord's will by healing this guy, and the healing I'm going to bring him is new breath in his lungs and a new heartbeat, new life. I'm going to raise him from the dead. The guy was right there listening to him the entire time. But where was Thomas's eyes? Where was Thomas's thoughts? Me. Me. It's all about me. It's all about I'm going to follow him and I'm going to die. Not about, I want to see God's glory in this resurrection of Lazarus. If he had told me, we're going to go and I'm going to raise this guy from the dead, my thought would be, wow, let's go. I want to see this miracle. Because my eyes, your eyes right now are on the glory of God. But Thomas's eyes were on, what does this mean to me? Not, does it mean, not what does it mean to God's glory, but what does it mean to me? And what it means to me is the worst of all things. I'm going to die. Do you see how deceptive it is when our eyes are not on the glory of God, but on ourselves? Thomas wasn't in any trouble. Thomas wasn't sick. Thomas wasn't threatened. Where does Thomas get, get this idea? Now let's go. We're going to die. It would have been better if he said, hey, now let's go. Let's see a miracle. That's what Jesus was thinking. He was going, I'm going there so you would have more belief, that your faith would grow stronger, that you would have more confidence that even death can't conquer the overcoming God King, me. But his eyes were off the very first verses we saw. Glory to God. All of this is happening that God would be glorified. And Thomas is automatically thinking the worst for himself. He's standing right there before the Messiah, and his eyes are off of God. What hope do we have? How quickly are our eyes off of God? How quickly do we think, oh, we're going to die. Oh, this is the worst thing that's ever happened to anybody. This is, the, this is bad. This now has all come to an end. Let's just die. If it was hard for Thomas, it's hard for us. The comfort in that, though, is that God knows that. God's not surprised that it's hard for us. He knows our eyes get off of him all the time. He knows that we have a problem with focusing on our own discomforts and not on his glory. He knows that. He understands it. So I think... As we finish, there is really one verse that stands out. There's a few verses that I allude to here in our take-home, but this verse, I think, needs to just simply stick in us, stick with us, stick in our hearts. It needs to be 1 Corinthians 6, 19, that we need to consider our dependence on God. And this verse says, you are not your own, you were bought with a price. All the troubles we face are not just our problems. God owns it. 
God owns our troubles. He owns our, our, our trials. He owns our pains, our sorrows. He owns all of us. He doesn't just own the glorified part of us that one day will be with him in heaven. He owns us. He knows what he was getting into when he bought us, when he redeemed us, when he loved us, when he showed us mercy. He knew what he was getting. He was getting someone who was tempted to take his eyes off the glory of God and put them back on themselves to where we think we're going to die. But he still bought you. He still redeemed you. Knowing of all of our faults, knowing of all of our inabilities and our uncertainties and our failures and our sins, he still laid down his life that you might have life everlasting. So when we start to doubt like Thomas, when our eyes get off of the prize of God's glory and the radiance of his holiness and it starts to be reflected in our own Oh, poor as me. That is the moment we wake up and say, no, not woe is me. I'm not in this alone. I'm in it with Jesus Christ, who has the power over life and death. He redeemed me by laying down his life that I might live. I'm not alone. I'm not by myself. I'm not outside the hand of God. I am firmly still grabbed onto by him, and nothing can separate me from that love. Nothing can separate you from that love. So the moment we feel that death is on the doorstep and all hope is lost, let's remind ourselves of 1 Corinthians 6, 19. We were bought with a price. We are not our own. He holds us. He promises to us. He's our overcoming God King. In times where we're happy and in times where we think the world is falling apart, he still has us. No reason to take our eyes off the glory of God. No reason to think all hope is lost. We might as well just go and die. We are Christ and he is ours. Amen? Let's pray and as the worship team comes up, let's Remind ourselves of that great glory of God that he has given us to see. Father, we thank you for this time, for the moment in your word. We thank you for the failures of Thomas because they are our failures as well. But we thank you that you don't leave us in that failure, but you redeem us from that. You forgive us. Father, help us in whatever trials we are facing, whether it be death itself, that we do not give up all hope and simply give over to that loss but that we keep our eyes firmly on you, the God of the living and the God of the dead, the God who has redeemed us and bought us. To your glory, Father, and all of God's people said, Amen. Amen. Let's stand and sing.